When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to the last episode of The Intelligence for 2019. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. At around this time, The Economist selects its country of the year. We take a tour around the foreign department to find out which nation our journalists think has improved the most in 2019. And the Democratic Republic of Congo has some of the worst roads on the planet. So commodities such as beer travel down the Congo River. Our correspondent endures a long and loud journey between the brewery and far-flung bars. First, as the year draws to a close, our top story takes a step away from the news to get an unusual look into America's criminal justice system. There are more than two and a half thousand people on death row in the United States. Drive 40 miles north of Houston, Texas, to the city of Conroe, and you'll meet a man who offers some of them hope. His name is Richard Reyna, and he is a death row sleuth. Our Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts, spent some time with him. So Richard Rayner is a handsome grandfather figure. He has slick black hair. His muscular arms showed a Rolex on one arm. He had gold-rimmed glasses on. He's a jovial man. He's quick to chuckle when we talked. He is a hard-working loner. He works on his own. He loves reading books about crime His office is crammed with souvenirs of cases he's worked on, newspaper clippings, and thick piles of case files, manila envelopes stuffed with documentation. Everyone has something to hide. That includes the prosecutors and the defense. Now, I want to talk to you off the record. He lives in Conroe, which is very close to Livingston, which is where the death row is, where people are kept as they wait for their execution. And he spent decades driving up to death row. And he sits and he speaks at great length to the inmates as they wait to be put to death. I want to get into their soul. They know they're going to die. And I know they're going to die. And I don't know, sometimes, you know, they cry and, and... Sometimes I cry, you know, I, I, I know they're, they're tough guys. And I know I can be a tough guy if I need to be, but uh, you still have feelings. You know? 
So, so tell me about his work. Who is it that hires him in this role? So he's usually brought in to reinvestigate death row cases quite late in the process. So the convicted felon will have already gone through one trial, have been found guilty, will have been sentenced to death. And then a second process begins of possibly appealing, possibly going up to federal courts. And usually it's the defence lawyers who will bring in a private investigator like Richard Rayner. But it may be the federal public defender, it might be private defence lawyers... And in some cases, it's European groups, whether it's linked to the Catholic Church or to other humanitarian groups, who want to hire a death row investigator to reinvestigate a dubious case. So how successful has he been in overturning cases? Well, his first case was back in the early 1980s. And keep in mind that these can take years to work through. He thinks in those 33 years or so, he's won the outright freedom of seven people. That means getting seven people who were about to be executed to be completely released. In addition to that, he's worked on many, many cases of people who were going to be executed and had their sentence commuted to a long prison term instead. So his most prominent case was back in the late 1980s, the case of a man called Clarence Brandley. Brandley was a janitor working in a school where a young teenage girl was raped and murdered. And Brandley was the only black janitor in the school. He was arrested, very quickly convicted. And the case was full of problems. It was racially motivated. Witnesses lied. The prosecutor was incredibly biased. The judge, in many cases of the trials, collaborated with the prosecution. Deeply troubling case that exposed the racism that was very prevalent in Texas at the time. And the role of Richard Rayner was to dig up evidence and to find witnesses who would clear Brandley's name. And he managed to do that. Brandley was exonerated, let out of prison with Richard Rayner walking beside him. And after that case, Rayner's career took off as a private investigator and everybody wanted to work with him. So do you get the sense from Mr. Rayner that a lot of these cases are skullduggery or or more often the case of just simple mistakes? He is very cynical about the legal system in America. He thinks prosecutors and judges worry most about being seen to be tough because they need to get re-elected. You've got to get somebody death so that you can call it a successful um, investigation. And he believes that very few people who are working in the legal system seem to care about truth, especially when it comes to those who are poor or brown-skinned and who are too uh, ill-represented by decent lawyers to be able to make their cases. So people immediately, when they see some poor uh, black guy or Hispanic guy, you know, he did it and he should be put to death. And so in going through all of these cases over all of these years, I mean, do sort of patterns emerge? Is he see the same kinds of things playing out all the time? Well, he talks about a couple of problems. One is that the statements that witnesses give when they're initially interviewed by police are often very different from the statements that appear when the case actually gets to court. And the second problem he sees is that the prosecution will often find evidence in the course of their work that should have been passed on to the defence often the prosecution will find some evidence that would make it clear that the man on trial actually didn't commit the crime, and yet time and again the prosecution fails to pass on that information to the defence. So how how is it that he gets to the bottom of these cases? I think what's particularly striking about Richard Rayner is that he doesn't really use technology. He is rather proud of being an old-fashioned shoe leather detective. I just have a flip phone. 
and I'm old school. You know, somebody says, well, you're, you're old school. You know what? I'm happy being old school. He stakes out homes, offices and bars. He studies police and autopsy reports. He works his way through trial papers, looks for inconsistencies in witness statements. I start asking the little questions. And then you know, the, the rapping starts, yeah. starts to come apart. He likes to be on the ground. He likes to be out talking to people. And he puts a lot of effort into being charming and building trust with people who can give him useful information. I want to rely on the ability to, to make that human contact and have the people tell you themselves. He also finds that witnesses who maybe had given false testimony in the original trial some years earlier will admit to what they did. Most people want to talk, you know, they, they, uh, it's been eating them for a long time. Mm. You know. And his, his main appeal in the end is moral. He has to spell out for them that it's on the basis of their testimony that a man may be put to death. And are they happy to live with that? And, and do you think that exposing flawed investigations could ultimately fix some of the rot, reduce some of the death penalties? So across America, something like 54% of Americans still favor capital punishment, but that number is dropping every year. In Texas, it's more like 65%. But the number of people being executed or being sentenced to death is steadily dropping over the years. And it could well be that Americans are slowly turning against the death penalty because they realize it just isn't a reliable way of doling out justice. And so why do you think it is that Mr. Rayner is so driven to do this? This is a passion for Richard Rayner. He believes there is truth out there and the truth needs to be exposed. It's truth. What happened? Why did it happen? When did it happen? And it may be that more than anything else, he really relishes doing the work. You don't imagine retiring, you're going to keep doing this. No, I'll just drop dead one day <laughs> with my files in my arms and, uh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. You can look at Richard Rayner and think in some ways he's an artefact from the past. He's one of the last of his kind, perhaps. But the problems he's dealing with, the injustices, the failures of the legal system, they haven't gone away. And so the work that men like Richard Rayner are doing, however they do it, is valuable and needs to carry on. Adam, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. At The Economist, one of our favorite traditions is awarding Country of the Year. The prize goes not to the most influential country or the one with the best standard of living or food, but to the one that has improved the most. The competition aims to go beyond each year's bleaker headlines to the success stories, to places where real progress has been made. Countries are nominated by journalists at The Economist, and to get a look at this year's runners and writers, we went on a tour around the Foreign Department to see who the correspondents and editors are rooting for. First stop, Christopher Lockwood, our Europe editor, who's gone for North Macedonia. Well, I think there is a good case for making North Macedonia country of the year. I think we owe it something. There's been a dispute going on for many years over what 
you should call this bit of territory. Now, the Greeks, when it became an independent country, were extremely unhappy about the idea of having a national entity called Macedonia sitting right next to them. That's because there is a region of Greece called Macedonia, and they thought that it implied a sort of claim on that. The whole business of that country being admitted into Western institutions, I'm thinking of NATO and the EU, was held up by a Greek veto because of the name. What happened is that a very bold uh, concession was made on both sides. The Greeks agreed to let them in. The Macedonians agreed that they would henceforth be known as North Macedonia. And that was very unpopular in North Macedonia or Macedonia, however you want to call it, because they were very proud of their name. They made this remarkable concession. Now, NATO has delivered its side of the bargain, but for the EU, this hasn't happened. And it's pretty disgraceful. The only reason, by the way, is President Emmanuel Macron of France. It isn't anything to do with enlarging or anything like that. It's simply to do with the fact that he thought it might be a bit unpopular in France. Edward McBride, Asia editor, which country would you like to be the country of the year? I know it sounds like a little bit of a stretch to nominate Uzbekistan. To understand why, you have to think back to what Uzbekistan was like even just a year or two ago. It was arguably the worst post-Soviet dictatorship. The same strongman had run the country since independence from the Soviet Union in, in 1991. He locked up anybody who said boo to him. He was uh, reputed to have boiled alive several dissidents. Huge numbers of elderly people, children, ordinary Uzbeks were all forced into the cotton fields to perform the harvest every year. So it, it was a really not a nice place. But you say it's changed a lot. It has. It's changed dramatically. When that dictator died in 2016, nothing much seemed to change. His prime minister, who'd been working with him for 13 years, succeeded him. And everybody thought it was going to be business as usual. But then the new president, whose name is Shavkat Mirziyoyev, began to reform more or less everything. The president floated the currency, which was absurdly overvalued. He opened the borders. On top of that, there have been some political changes more recently. The most important is he's, he's shut down the gulag. No, no more boiling people alive. People are able to express their opinions. And, and then on top of that, slavery has uh, more or less been wiped out. Uzbekistan has improved uh, beyond measure, beyond recognition. And, and that's why I nominated it for Country of the Year. Nell Whitehead, Australia and New Zealand correspondent, which country did you nominate? New Zealand for the way it responded to the attacks on Christchurch in March. So a white nationalist there killed 50 people in two mosques in the city. And the response of the prime minister was to put on a headscarf and to go and visit the families of the victims. And she hugged them and she said that an attack on Muslims was an attack on all New Zealanders. And within a month, New Zealand's parliament had voted almost unanimously to change gun laws to ban most types of semi-automatic weapon like the ones that were used by the gunman. And the effect of the attacks was to bring its people together when the intent had been the opposite, um, to, to divide them. 
international correspondent Daniel Knowles, you nominated Sudan as the country of the year. Why? Well, about this time a year ago, Sudan started its revolution. People came out onto the streets and they protested. And amazingly, you know, this country that had been held by a sort of genocidal dictator for almost 30 years, Omar al-Bashir, who took power in, in 1989, you know, they, they pushed them out. In April, there was a coup, which was brought about by the army, but they needed to do it to kind of satisfy the protesters. And the protesters kept going. And now there is a civilian government in Sudan for the first time in decades. And there's a chance, and there's still a lot of risk, but there's a chance that maybe it, it comes, you know, towards a government that actually kind of works for the Sudanese people. The winner is chosen from the editorial team's nominees, with the efforts spearheaded by our foreign editor, Robert Guest. The country of the year for 2019 is Uzbekistan. It was the scale and breadth of the reforms of going from a place where dissidents were boiled alive and the government actually enforced a form of slavery to a place that had stopped boiling people alive and abolished slavery. I mean, that's just a very dramatic change, and we hope that they continue in that direction. Is it just a matter of hope or is it conviction that it will continue? I mean, how do, how do countries of the year tend to fare? It's, it's always a big hostage to fortune to pick something as country of the year after a year of dramatic improvement, because particularly if you're talking about countries that were a little bit unstable beforehand, the chances of them reverting to some form of instability or widespread injustice is, is quite high. And the, the most obvious example of this, as we've seen recently, is, is Myanmar, which was our country of the year when they replaced the the military regime with essentially the leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi, the former Nobel Peace Prize winner. And we were very optimistic about Myanmar. The year that that happened, while acknowledging that there were big problems going on with the Rohingyas, well, since then, you know, the scale of the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingyas has, has only increased. And the spectacle just this month in December of seeing Aung San Suu Kyi stand up in The Hague and barefacedly claim that what was going on between the Myanmarese army and the Rohingyas was not genocide. It, it, was, it was very distressing to watch. Myanmar has really gone backwards. That said, plenty of our picks have stood the test of time. We, we gave it to Colombia for ending the civil war. That civil war is still over and Colombia is doing very well. We gave it to Armenia last year for peacefully ejecting a, a Putinesque potentate and they're still doing pretty well. So for the moment, it's fingers crossed for Uzbekistan. All progress is provisional. But yes, it's fingers crossed for Uzbekistan. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Congo is a vast country. I mean, it's four times the size of France and has fewer roads than Luxembourg. But I'm always astonished that when I visit villages in the middle of nowhere, down mud tracks and on riverbanks, you always find a dusty bottle of beer. Olivia Ackland writes for The Economist from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I wanted to discover how the breweries managed to so efficiently get their beer around such a vast, badly connected country. So I had an idea to follow a beer from the brewery in the capital, Kinshasa, all the way to the hand of someone in a tiny village on a riverbank. In the end, I didn't quite manage to follow the same beer, but I did follow the route. The lack of paved roads in the country means that beer must travel along the Congo River, the world's second longest. 
So I took two boats, one carrying beers up the river from Kinshasa, the capital, and another, which was more like a floating village, which carried beer, people, livestock from another town in the middle of the country. The first journey I took was on a boat carrying half a million beers belonging to one of the breweries, Bra Congo, traveling up the river all the way to the city of Bandundu, 200 miles upstream. It takes the boat seven days, but if only the road were tarmac, the beers would be able to reach Bandundu in under a day on a lorry. I got on the boat and the crew were mostly gathered together at the tip of the boat and they were listening to rumba music that was being blasted out of a tinny radio and the barge bobbed out into the vast Congo River. The crew were bemoaning the hardships of life on board. Well, I mean, why is that? They're surrounded by beer. It's, it's an honest day's work. Well, they said they spend around six months on the barge a year, although rather dramatically one sailor told me that he would stay on the boat until he dies. They also told me they don't sleep much because it's their very important job to guard the beer. And so they take it in turns to sit up on deck throughout the night, and so they only sleep in sort of three-hour shifts. There was also a cat on board whose name was Mirage. And his job was to trap the rats. One of the sailors told me that if you leave the rats, they'll just gnaw through everything. And there are other perils too. Omar Barkat, the barge's owner, told me that he has to factor in an extra $500 because inevitably the boat will be stopped by soldiers. In the past, they've tried to get on board and then they demand large amounts of beer and fuel. So it's better to deal with them swiftly. So once Omar's boat reaches its destination, where, where does the beer go next? So Omar has a fleet of boats and they go to two main depots. And from the depots, clients come and pick up crates of beer and then take them on public boats back to their villages. So I then flew to Bandaka and hopped on a spluttering wooden vessel carrying around 150 people, about 60 sacks of charcoal, palm oil, peanuts, suitcases of old clothes, two charred cobras, which were a regional delicacy, and a rather sad-looking chicken. The boat was supposed to leave the port at 4pm, but it set off five hours late at around nine. Soon after we pulled out into the dark river, there was a smell of marijuana wafting down from the upper deck. The upper deck is known as the United States because, as one passenger told me, it's as high as you can go, both in life and on the boat. And below, on the lower deck, there were just masses of people crowded around smoky charcoal stoves cooking their dinners. So this is more or less the last stage of the journey for the beer? I mean, did you speak to anybody who's taking it to its ultimate destination? Yeah, so this boat was traveling for four days, and I spoke to one lady, Christine, who had picked up 70 crates of beer from the Bra Congo depot that day and was taking them to the final stop, the village called Akula. I spoke to her through a translator, and she told me that she travels twice a month on these boats to collect beer for her bar. Each round trip takes about a week, and she does two a month. So, in other words, she spends half her life on this incredibly uncomfortable and overcrowded and unsafe wooden vessel. She said that the journeys are really tough. She sleeps out on deck, both in the pouring rain and the muggy heat. And she dreads the journey, but she pointed out that without beer, how else will her bar survive? So what did all of this journey, this beer boat, tell you about Congo? 
people are these traders, people like Christine, is risking her life to go on these unsafe vessels up and down the Congo River, which, by the way, is infested with crocodiles, and most people can't swim. But there are a few alternatives. I mean, with if the government don't provide enough good roads, then traders like Christine have no other way of getting beer back to their bars. And so at any point, did you have a beer on your journey? I did, actually. Not on the boat. Um, once I had disembarked from the incredibly uncomfortable boat, I had a beer on the riverbanks, yeah. Is it good beer? It's really good beer. Bra Congo have worked very hard to improve the quality of the taste, and they've done a good job. It's delicious, yeah. Most people in Congo drink them warm because there's not much electricity in a lot of places. I preferred a cold one. Olivia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some hard-earned time off, but we'll see you back here on January 2nd. As ever, if you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. Merry Christmas. <laughs>